Hey guys, welcome back to the State of It Season 3, Episode 4. Dad's joining me today. Dad, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Wynn. How are you on this gorgeous spring day? I'm okay. Just been outside for a little stroll, got a haircut, nothing too special. But now we're, uh, well, I mean, the sun's going down now, so it could be a lot worse. At least, we're, at least we're doing it at the right time of day, Dad. So today, let's talk a little bit about Britain's response and maybe tie that into Brexit. So regarding the Russia ukraine war dad what are your thoughts on britain's response well it's interesting because you know i, I obviously a predicted brexit and b supported that process because i felt that uh, europe was a failed construct and uh, we were a system that was ascending and brexit would give us the best possible potential to manifest that energy and that energy was actually really important in the construct of global democracy because with a failing Europe and America in late stage decline, in effect, we represented the young, the young energy that's rejuvenated and with a more expansive and integrative mindset towards intervention and the protection of democracy. And lots of people laughed, you know, and thought that Brexit was really about becoming more introvert and separate uh, on the contrary. And I think there's two things since Brexit which have kind of shown as markers much greater national energy than Europe around or America. And that's, first of all, the, the vaccine response and the creation of the vaccine through, you know, a private a private uh, medium of development, which I think was remarkable. And the other one is actually what and how we've been responding to Ukraine, because really we have been supporting them probably more than any other European power in terms of training um, and uh, and the, and recently we were the first to give them non-lethal aid in the form of N-laws. I don't think that could have happened if we were part of Europe. And if you look at Europe's response, you just had a completely subservient Germany to, 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 to Russia and really just didn't move. And you had the Putin whisper in the form of, of Macron who basically just didn't understand what he was into. And Britain actually stood up and stood tall and started that process of galvanizing Europe. And I think um, if we hadn't been a Brexit Britain, we would never have been able to do that or done it at all effectively. So I think there's some really great signs there. What's interesting is we feel like, you know, we deserve it of patting ourselves on the back because we were first and, and probably the most vocal. But what's really interesting is in the context of what's required, our response hasn't gone far enough by a long way. Because the simple reality is that we haven't just given the Ukrainians in-laws, we and our intelligence gathering equipment and planes, I'm convinced, pass information to the operational aspects of the war in Ukraine. Those in-laws were very significant in stopping the initial armoured advances um, and they came from us. And we've been pretty, pretty firm with Russia in terms of how we think. So in terms of Putin's perspective on Britain, I'm sure we're the number one target within Europe, um, simply because we're the strongest, um, but that we're not strong enough to front him out and face his nuclear blackmail. So you're caught by between being stronger than the others and standing taller, but not completing the job and migrating to a stronger posture. And I think the first sign of a stronger posture is quite simply an emergency expenditure program on defence that takes us to 5% in terms of a huge lump sum payment of probably £100 billion right now and moving that defence budget to £100 billion each year thereafterwards. Because what people don't realise in the incremental demise of our defence over 20 years is actually our capability to do anything militarily 
is incredibly limited from, if you're lucky, one armoured brigade, which is just a pittance, um, to warships which really don't have the weapons on them to do the job and are not numerous enough, to aeroplanes that are farther less than numerous. We, we are a really a paper tiger. And I think that somewhere that someone needs to wake up Boris and team and say, do you really understand how little combat power we have? Because they think they don't. They, they keep taunting the fact they've spent four billion pounds more on defence than anyone else and increased defence expenditure. But they fail to recognise how completely disastrously positioned we were at that moment. And that four billion dollars pounds a year is a drop in the ocean. So we need to recognise that um, we are probably or at the cusp of World War Three, and our only chance is deterrence on a huge scale right now, hoping to stop it from spreading, sending the signal to China that in, we, Britain, have started that process, which I suspect would cascade and not the similar response from other NATO countries. So I, I think that we've sort of gone some of the way, but really considering the, the threat and imminent danger we're in, we've really been irresponsible in not going all the way and recognising just what we're into. And this idea that defence will be reviewed financially at the budget suggests that it's just situation normal, when in fact this is the most dire and extreme situation we've been in since the end of World War II. Um, so uh, I, I think there's a lot further to go from our government to, in the defence of our realm. You touched there upon how, how you believe Britain has been enabled uh, by Brexit to be essentially a leading leading voice in, in the verbal and political battle against Russia and with sanctions as well. Um, do, you, do you think credit is due, though, now, looking at the European response on the mainland, like with Germany? You notice Germany and, and Russia had closer ties before the Russia-Ukraine war. Now, Germany is increasing its defence spending. It's, it's cutting links to Russia. Do you think that's, like, that deserves a, a, you know, not yeah. to say a medal, but that's a massive positive and that's a marked change yeah. from what was there before? It's definitely a market change when, I mean, really, Merkel sold Germany into the arms of Putin. It's quite incredible that, you know, a single German can actually look at her with any sense of benevolence. And in the process, she disarmed Germany as well. So the emergency spending bill that they put into action is because their defence forces are even worse than ours. And they're so much closer to Russia on the continent than we are. Well, at least we have a sea barrier. They have nothing. So I think, in truth, it was absolute fear that they were going to be next and they had to do something about it. I suspect that within the realms of the German construct, there's still a lot more resistance to the idea of doing that than actually we hear in the public domain because money talks and it's inveigled the whole system all the way down since Schroeder basically started that process and became a Russian, even though he was once born a German. So it's good news, but I think we have to be very aware of the fact that we're in a dire situation, a little bit like the phony war, you know, after 1939, where we were at war with Germany, but it just seemed like situation normal. And I think we owe it to the Ukrainians in their incredible courage and spirited defence to use their time to make our preparations so that we appear to be together and able to deter with really sufficient force and capability Putin. And if you look at, for example, any lever he has, he's used it. He's used nuclear de-escalization because that's the theory of creating a bubble in which he can operate his conventional forces, having trained the West that, of course, the world will end because he's a madman. And if we challenge him, it'll all be over. He's not a madman. He's entirely logical. 
No one who's a madman spends such a time on a long table for his own protection when anyone comes to visit him. The simple truth is he guards his life because he values his life, and we need to realize that he's not mad. So we do need to reassert mutually assured destruction by facing off that particular issue, the nuclear threat, because none of us are safe until we do. I don't see uh, the Putin whisperer over in France doing it, and I don't see um, Biden doing it. But strange enough, I think Boris could do it under the right circumstances. There's there's an awful lot more to come, I think, with Boris, with the right advisors around him, to so he understands the severity of the situation. I think he really could actually be a very bold leader, truly bold. But it's now dependent on removing the linear advisors around him with a much more lateral mindset that can strategically get ahead of the the Russian decision curve. At the moment, we're always behind. Could you? Go into a little bit more depth with how you believe Brexit paved the way for Britain to be the loudest voice against Russia. Yeah, well, if you look at, you know, in the five stages of empire model, if you look at what Brexit was, it was the regional civil war of the new cycle of Britain. So I would argue that, you know, having lost an empire and languishing around that sort of shame of um, the destruction of what was in the 70s, Thatcher came along and kick-started the productivity of Britain. And when the Falklands War came along, reasserted our sense of pride too, and sense of ourselves. Uh, and although we didn't choose that war, we certainly finished it. And I think that war was very significant for the Cold War because it reminded those in um, Moscow that capitalists weren't weak and that if um, Britain could travel 8,000 miles to regain its islands, it was certainly going to be determined enough to use its nuclear weapons in mutually assured destruction. And it only really needed Britain to start when everyone else would be brought in in a cascade. So that guarantee of intention from Britain meant mutually assured destruction was reassured. And Britain um, moved up that curve, you know, much as we denied it and we embarrassed to be British. And all the way through that process, that first stage is always denial of the ascension. And then I remember I told you about two signals which I looked out for, which was one of them was key, which is moving up through the medal table because it represented national aspiration, coherence, and the ability to harness money effectively in competition, a really key driver of national energy. And the two medal positions of third and then second really, to me, triggered a recognition that Britain was and had risen to a point where it needed to express itself in a more expansive form. So, of course, you had the current leadership, which was much more European and, and linear in many ways in, in its thinking, because it was a continental thought process. And essentially, then you had the Brexit dynamic, which was to break away and return to the global maritime hegemony or, or, or model that we were so familiar with for hundreds and hundreds of years. So that's more a lateral thinking thought process. So in the process of liberating and going through that change, I think we created more lateral leadership at the top. And lateral leaders are far more able to see something for what it is and adapt than linear leadership that just keeps doing the same thing and wonders why the results start to produce the same outcomes, even though they're failures. So it's about lateral leadership at the top. And that's really what the process of a regional civil war is, to put lateral leadership into command. And that basically means the system is then ready to take on the entropy of the world and, and, and challenges whereupon they're presented. Defence is, for obvious reasons, a big topic right now and one you've already brought up. You did a defence review a few years ago. Uh, are there any things that you would alter if you could write that review now? Or would, yeah. you, would you say that it's, it's to the money accurate? 
Well, it's actually to the money accurate because it, it predicted the systematic challenge of China and that Putin was an opportunistic bully that if we didn't present the right signals, he would take that opportunity and use it against us. And when I wrote that review, um, I, I think, and you're aware of it, I got it into number 10 and the MOD and the Treasury. Most importantly, three weeks later, Boris stood up and announced how important defence was. And whoever wrote that speech had read now and ever because he used all the phraseology in it, which is not standard um, anywhere in, in the workplace. So he definitely used it and it triggered it. And it made me think, wow, you know, I created something to create change. That's exciting. But then when the Strategic Defence Review came along, it was just the same old political constriction of our force capability, destroying what we have now for some future capability that wasn't determined. It was really irresponsible on so many levels. And although threats have been recognised, we didn't recognise them as real. I think they were just sort of words in a piece of paper. Whereas in the Now and Ever review, I was very clear about what was going to happen, understanding what the commodity cycle would do to competition, what it would do to Putin and emboldening him through the revenue streams and how it all come together in a horrible mess about now. So I'm I'm really, and, and then I had to listen to um, Boris Speaker, the Defence Select Committee, and saying about tanks not being relevant in this, you know, again, in modern warfare. And of course, they may not be, but unless you have them, you can't counter someone else's tanks. So I think that's a very good example of a failure of that policy. And then he finished off it with a now or never phrase, which just made me smile because that's obviously the title of the review. I would argue that if we had moved as the now or never defense review suggested to 5% and we had armed ourselves, that would have actually made Putin think very differently. He is truly a bully and not just a bully that's, a, you know, the kind of bully that we meet at school, the nasty piece of work. He has a lifetime of psychological skills to ensure he manipulates his opponents to his will by sheer force. The only thing he respects is sheer force. So I think that seeing Britain rearm itself would have been sufficient to actually realise just like the Falklands experience, where there was one power in continental Europe that would not bend, we could have done exactly the same and Ukraine may well not be happening. So I, I really feel we we've we failed um, as a nation. Our leadership failed and is responsible, although it's been trying to correct it. But to learn from that lesson and not have incremental linear responses and take a quantum leap forward to get ahead of Putin's ambitions is now really critical. And a good example is he just used a hypersonic weapon as a demonstrator. He didn't have to destroy that building with a hypersonic weapon. What he's doing is showing the West that the one weapon he has that truly challenges American carrier power is a hypersonic anti-ship missile. And it's a reminder that the West has become really quite impotent for a moment because we can't shoot down these anti-ship missiles or defend carriers in the way we could. And they're very vulnerable, both to Chinese systems and Russian systems. And it's that vulnerability of our strategic advantage, which has provided this window of opportunity for Putin right now. You paint a picture of, of Ukraine never happening if Britain had increased spending to 5% and had introduced a rearmament program a couple of years ago. But in my eyes, I find that highly doubtful. I think that Britain, though a strong power in Europe, is but one, and we're on the other side of a continent, and Ukraine sits right next to Russia. Even if we had got on a rearmament program, Germany, France, Italy, other powers had no inclination to do the same. 
I don't think it would have altered Putin's well, well, Putin's, there's, Putin's there's aims or, or actions in any in any meaningful form. Well, I think this this was somewhat inevitable and has been planned for clearly months, if not years. I think it's been planned for fifteen years when since two thousand and seven. But then, so yes, if, it's been if that's the case, Dad, but if that's the case, then even the rearmament program so, so, so then you, wouldn't you've have done remember, anything. All expansionary systems are like predators. And they only strike when they think they can get away with it because they see weakness and opportunity. So by Britain alone rearming, I think some of the things that have been missed and I've written about are we've had more um, submarine incursions in our waters and our communication lines than we ever did in the Cold War because we ran down our anti-submarine capability in terms of ships, submarines in the water to counter another submarine and planes. And it was no coincidence that Putin aggressively probed our waters and we couldn't defend them. Now, if we had upped our game such that, you know, in an emergency deployment, we had moved faster. And I know it's short order, but just imagine we had that um, aggressive reconnaissance would have had a very different result. And he would have realized he was facing a much more alert Britain than the face we presented. I think the other part that's critical is when we started to do it, then other countries might well have started to follow. Because there is a sense of why are they doing it? If they're threatened, then maybe we should be threatened. So I think there was a real opportunity there for, for us to lead the rest of the world in a process or the rest of Europe that this 2% stuff wasn't enough. You said something a few minutes ago. Um, the quote was, unless you have tanks, you can't counter tanks. But presently in Ukraine, Russian forces are out now, at the start of the conflict were outnumbered by Russian main battle tanks, as in Ukrainian, sorry, Ukrainian battle tanks were outnumbered by Russian main battle tanks three to one, and Russian main or Ukrainian main battle tanks seem to be playing a very limited role in street to street fighting. So surely infantry with anti tank weaponry can effectively counter tanks. Well, the, so this is the thing, right? So w w there is a whole revolution in the face of battle taking place in front of us, and it's going to be the subject of a number of articles next week because it it, it really is a revolutionary period. And the Defence Review did allude to this revolution on the battlefield and uh, and really not quite sure which way to go with it. So what we've seen in, in the process on the battlefield is the end laws that Britain provide, provide initially... Um, 2000 and subsequently another 2000 they have a range of about 800 meters and they're absolute killing machines you know the number of t72 tanks with their turrets blown off that's a substantial impact and i suspect they're designed to come down the, to you know vertically through the the vertical armor at the back of the turret which is very thin and that's where the where the ammunition is stored and the combination is a very very nasty outcome now for you to use a, a weapon with an 800 meter range your enemy has to come to you you've got to be positioned, camouflage, dug in, it comes to you, you use it. And that's exactly the environment that's been most successful, bluntening the attack. Now, it's been made slightly easier by the way the Russians have advanced, because instead of advancing on a broad front on open ground, they've tended to move along road structures for whatever reasons, incompetence, you know, ground difficulties. And that's made them a really really ripe target whether it's the head of the column the column stops the side of the column so those weapons have been very instrumental in the initial bluntening of that attack and it shows you that you know increasingly see the individual infantryman is has developing more and more combat power so there's an interesting trend and the u.s marines actually uh, noticed this this trend 
a number of years ago and gave up the concept of large-scale amphibious landings and created these company-sized operational teams with that are misalarmed because the recognition of the individual light infantryman has suddenly become an extremely powerful um, player uh, with weapons, you know, that like this and with longer ranges. The other piece that's changed quite a bit that's interesting is if you look at these uh, Turkish TB2 drones, and maybe a couple of dozen have been provided so far to the Ukrainians. These things are like having your own light air force. And uh, their ability to basically, if you don't have a full sophisticated air force, their ability to pick out targets and published on the Murray Nation today is a link to, to what's being killed that can be verified by which instruments. And these TB2 tones have been, you know, seeding real damage, not just 800 meters of the battlefront, but right in the rear because they're quite considerable range. And I think that's, a, the drone, we've heard a lot about drones, but the combat power of drones in um, against an army like the Soviets that seem to not have any indigenous anti-aircraft capability is really proving to be significant. I can't see the TB2 drone eluding a ZU-23 if they had enough of them, which is a radar-controlled anti-aircraft gun that's mounted on a, um, a T-72 chassis. But they obviously don't have them there. And then there's another arm of the um, of the Ukrainian forces, which you, you may have seen, but basically they've modified their own versions of commercial drones and put night, night vision gear because um, soldiers on the ground can't see those drones at night and they've used it to attack armored vehicles very successfully. Now, I think in the in the redressing the balance and what, you know, looking ahead of this battlefield, which is changing its face, which includes, by the way, the provision of signals intelligence from Western forces onto the ground forces in Ukraine to a level that really is impressive. I mean, when you see a command tank in a regiment taking out and the secondary target of a TOS-2, which is a thermobaric vehicle, you know that when they fired three shells and two of them aimed at those vehicles, they've been able to single out the primary targets and the command vehicle will be signaled out by its electronic emissions so there has to be a very high level of electronic uh, intelligence passed down to the field units again something which is you know, it's always been there but not on the rate and ability and capability so this this battlefield in front of us is changing and i think if the americans do provide these um the, the 600 version of their switchblades these things fly you know for 25 40 minutes and they're able to carry a warhead that'll kill a tank and they're self-programming and off they go and they search their targets. I think that is the answer to an embattled Ukrainian force that's stuck without real air power, being besieged by artillery and pounded to bits. Those switchblades could really, given them with the right numbers, could really make a difference. So I think depending on when they're deployed, there's a swing in that regard to destroy Russia's ability to pound the cities and and the surrounded Ukrainian forces into this pummeling dust scenario, which could then shift the balance of power further in the favor of the Ukrainians. I think at the moment they are losing. They're slowly being constricted by a giant constrictor that's just squeezing them. And at some stage when the Russians get their stuff together and they go north to south, they'll surround the Ukrainian army, which is in the east of Ukraine. And that must be facing a decision of do they stand and fight or do they retreat and become very vulnerable to air power, as you know, the Germans found in the Second World War. Retreating without air cover could lead you to lead a large percentage of your forces. So some difficult decisions ahead. The technology of switchblades, I think, is a big one. And then the other thing the Ukrainians desperately need is, is high-altitude air defense. Um, if they could have that, then they would have a really fighting chance. And then we would see Putin have to ratchet up again to other levels of chemical weapons or something even nastier. So the trouble is every time you get to the point of 
of success, you push Putin into a higher domain of action. So it's a tricky escalatory cycle. Well, thank you, Dad. Um, I think that's all we've got time for today. As always, appreciate the insights. And thank you for listening, guys. Cheers, Dad. Thank you, Ian. We'll do another one next week and keep everyone abreast.